The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Madalika Sika, executive editor for NPR News and author of A Breast Cancer Alphabet. A Breast Cancer Alphabet is her new book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Madalika. Thank you for inviting me, Catherine. Well, one in eight women in America, will be diagnosed during their lifetime with breast cancer. And uh, unfortunately, you were one of them. And your book, An A to Z Guide to Living with Breast Cancer, really does offer a new perspective for those living it with it. So, Natalika, uh, let's first start with when were you diagnosed, when were you first diagnosed, and uh, what was the first thing that you did? Well, I was uh, diagnosed in December of uh, 2010. Uh, I actually was at the White House, we were uh, conducting an interview with President Obama. I knew I'd be hearing from my doctor that day, and when we got out of the interview, there was a message, um, and I had her paged, and she told me that, in fact, my biopsy results confirmed that I did have breast cancer, um, which was sort of a bolt out of the blue. It, had, it was a result of a routine mammogram. There's no history of breast cancer in my family, um, so of any ailments I thought I might have to deal with as I aged, uh, breast cancer was not one of them. Um, so you didn't feel any lump? This was just something you went in for your routine mammogram? and yes. So absolutely no expectation that you were going to have a diagnosis of cancer? No, not cancer. at all. Not at all. So it was really a bolt from the blue. <laughs> um, what was your initial reaction? Well, it, the, the sad thing is there's not much you can do right at the moment because uh, that's when you have to start preparing to meet a lot of different doctors. Uh, my internist was the one who got the results for me. She's not a cancer doctor. The most important thing she had done was set up an appointment for me with a surgeon, and she was also arranging for me to meet with oncology. So when she called me with the diagnosis, she said, and here is what is going to happen next. But that wasn't going to happen for several days. Um, and there's really nothing to do in between that except, uh, you know, try and prevent your mind from going to dark places, which unfortunately it does. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk about because, I mean, that is what happens, you know. And, and I don't think all the time or necessarily that one's uh, internist or physician uh, takes such a role and tells you, okay, this is what we're going to do, albeit even if it's in a few days. Some, some women, I think, are left with, now what do I do? And they're the ones who have to orchestrate it. But I think that's absolutely true, and I was uh, very fortunate to have an internist who um, has looked after me in a very holistic way. So she knows you, she knew you. Yes, we. Did you say holistic, so that's emotional and physical. Yeah, and she she knows. She's my husband's internist. My husband had been diagnosed with cancer ten years before me, so 
so she had gone through this with us. Um, and another sort of good thing that I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where I was being dealt, um, my medical care is at Georgetown University Hospital, which has a cancer center, so everything could be done there. So she was at Georgetown, and she could reach out to her colleagues at Georgetown, and I could have everybody in one place, which I know is a real rarity, um, and I think for me made all the difference in coping with my treatment. Okay, so Alyssa, and yes, so here you are at Georgetown, which is a top facility, um, and you don't have to be searching around for that, but let's talk about your emotional reaction, because your husband was diagnosed 10 years ago. Now, I mean, just the immediate, what goes through your mind? Well, um, sadly, you do go to the dark places, and um, what I did immediately was uh, finish up uh, editing the interview with the president and then went home and cried, um, which I think is uh, a pretty normal reaction. Uh, And, of course, you can't sleep because you can't start thinking about the worst thing possible. And when you have, you know, small kids, my kids were um, then in lower school and middle school, you kind of imagine a life that they have without you being part of it. Um, And that is a perfectly natural place to go. Um, And sadly, you go to the darkest places before you see the light. But, you know, in your book, the, 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 obviously the title of the book, Breast Cancer Alphabet, um, what, one of the things that, I, I don't know if this is, I think this is something we need to talk about before we discuss the book specifically, but, these platitudes about breast cancer and breast cancer awareness month. And now, you know, we have all these, I always say women, and and I probably shouldn't say this, but women kind of running and jumping in pink for breast cancer and everybody seems kind of happy and joyous. And, um, you know, if you contribute so much money at at a retail store, they, so much money goes to breast cancer and all of this kind of stuff. How did that fit into, you know, your experience? Well, not at all. And I think it's perfectly okay for you to say that. Um, It is one of the things I try and get at um, in the book. I think that there is, there are platitudes around breast cancer. I think there's a sort of um, pink fluffiness to it that belies what the reality is of going through the disease. Um, and I think that you know the breast cancer awareness movement has actually been one of the most important, significant efforts in women's health in the last couple of decades, but I think we sort of reached a tipping point. Um, and when you go through the disease, you find it really difficult to f- define a straight line between the NFL clad in pink or you know, the pink teddy bears or food products that you see plastered with pink ribbons, you find it hard to find a direct line from that to what you are going through. Um, so I, I actually found it a little annoying. Um, okay, well, you just said, okay, we reached, it was, uh, breast cancer awareness has been great over the, well, at least past two or three decades because it makes everyone aware and gets rid of the stigma and, and generates money, but now we're at a different stage. Hence, I guess, your book, because your book kind of represents this new stage that we're at in terms of our attitudes and responsibilities and, uh, I guess, demystifying breast cancer. Yeah, I think it's okay to um, acknowledge the pain and difficulty of going through uh, treatment, um, if you think about it, the treatment has not changed at all. They do a combination of um, uh, cutting, poisoning, and burning you, either mastectomy and chemotherapy and radiation, and that has some combination of that. That has not changed a lot. And believe me, there is nothing pink and fluffy about any of that. Um, and you don't have to be upbeat during it because think about it. Horrible things are happening to your body, and I think... Uh, 
in some ways acknowledging that actually helps the healing. Did um, you feel that you go, you know, uh, well, your husband having had cancer, mm-hmm. he, I would, I'm making the assumption he had some kind of a, an understanding of what you're going through? Yeah, he had surgery and he had radiation. I had surgery and I had chemotherapy. I did not have radiation. So between the two of us, we sort of covered covered the bases. Um, I think, uh, you know, the surgery, a mastectomy, I talk about in my book, M is for mastectomy, and I think it's sort of funny that we use this clinical term in our everyday language and it allows us to be divorced from the reality of what exactly is happening to you and I prefer to I write about describing it as feeling like an amputation and understanding it that way um, kind of suited me and what I felt was going I was going through um, it's very painful and it's a very extreme and if you think about it violent reaction to cure you or to help cure you, or try and cure you, and but that is what we have. That is what we have available to us. Um, so you go through this, well, you call it an amputation, almost a mutilation of your body. It, uh, it is absolutely a mutilation, and uh, it, it's funny. We have uh, a very complicated relationship with our breasts. You know, I think breasts are fetishized in society, but in your everyday life, you know, they're pretty private things and you don't talk about them and, you know, they are your domain and suddenly it becomes what the thing is all about. Um, And and everybody has access to your breasts. Yes. uh, There are a ton of medical professionals who have access to your breasts. They are touching you and they are taking photographs of you and um, it's all a very strange and unexpected thing to go through. Um, And one of the reasons I sort of wrote about that was I I didn't realize, you know, I I think about it in the abstract, but actually going through it makes you really think about, wow, this is seriously happening to me and it's not something I've encountered before. And so I hope that it will be useful for people who are, are diagnosed and for their caregivers around them to get them to understand a little bit, have a little bit of insight into what their loved ones may be dealing with. Well, let's talk about maybe specifically about some of the insights in the book. I mean, you mentioned the word sex. No one ever, you know, when that sex, breasts, um, being attractive, uh, feeling not attractive. How does you know that that's a huge topic, especially you're talking about yourself and many, many other very young women um, who find themselves in this situation. So, where does sex come into play? Well, no, it doesn't come in very much yeah. actually. Um, I mean, I think what uh, I sort of talk about not wanting to be cancer competitive, but, you know, a man's sex life and the impact on his sex life is often discussed when talking about prostate cancer. And I feel in breast cancer, fertility comes up, particularly for younger women who are diagnosed who still want to have children, but sex doesn't come up. Um, And, you know, your body is mutilated, you're taking a poisonous form of treatment and you have horrible side effects and your libido is effective, it, it affected. Um, the whole thing is kind of a mess. <laughs> and I think understanding that going in um, actually helps, and particularly for your partner to understand what is happening and that this may be a temporary thing. And you as the patient feel worse than your partner feels about you. Your partner still loves you, but you're feeling terrible and you look terrible and it, it's it's hard to climb out of that. And how do you want other people to react? We're talking about your partner, but I'm, I'm thinking about, and 
I think anyone that I know, whether they've been diagnosed or have breast cancer or or their best friend or their mother or sister, I think we've all been affected by it. You know, the first question is, well, you know, what do I say? How do I talk to my sister now that she's been diagnosed? And people tend to talk in platitudes and afraid to really talk about the tough stuff. But I think you say what the most helpful thing is to be able to talk about these tough things. Because it takes a lot of energy, another level, to have to be talking about things that really aren't important to you or aren't meaningful in terms of where you are at this point with your breast cancer. It or- does. I mean, I think that, you know, it, you know the kind of relationship you have with the patient, whether it's a sister or a best friend or a mother, you know, that's sort of one level. I think the other level, one of my letters, um, K is for kindness. Uh, I write about the fact that there are a lot of people in your life who want to help you, and what you as a patient have to do is when people ask you what they can do, think about it, not too long and not too hard, figure out what you really need, and ask people to do that for you. So you don't want to to be, you know, buried with soft toys, what you want maybe is someone to help shepherd your kids around if you are going to treatment or, um, you know, help you carry things or, you know, be there if your partner can't be there for any particular appointment. And the other, you know, one of the most valuable things my friends did was organize a meal delivery service. Um, So for five months, we were fed by all our friends and food was delivered uh, several times a week, there was a big cooler on the porch, um, and we did not have to worry about that, which, uh, you know, when you have kids and you've got a lot going on, dealing with your cancer takes up a lot of your time. Um, that was probably one of the single most important things, and people felt like, okay, I am really doing something to help here. So it's, it's a two-way street. You as a patient have to sort of figure out and not be embarrassed and not be type A, as I tend to be, um, and say, okay, I could really do with some help on this, and then people will generally react in a positive way. You say generally. Would there be anyone who would react in a negative way if you were very, they ask you, you know, K is for kindness, and you tell them what you want? Well, I hope that if they ask you, they mean it. Um, If they don't ask you, then you don't need to ask them. Uh, I think some people can't deal with illness, that's fine. You may know them um, and know that about them. But I think generally when you hear from someone, it's because they want to help you. And this is true not just for my friends and my close friends, but for my colleagues um, as well who all felt that they wanted to do something to help. What about the children? What about the family? I know kids, you know, they see mommy as, you know, at first, okay, there's a maybe a crisis, but then they sort of adapt to the crisis, and then they want you back as mommy who can run around and do all she did and go to the soccer games and, you know, and have the expectation that you are the way you were when you're not. And, um, and you describe yourself as a type A personality, so I would assume someone who wants to be able to live up to their expectations. How did that work? Well, I think, you know, one thing you discover is kids are remarkably resilient, um, and I think that is true across all circumstances. We, we tend to sort of wrap them in bubble wrap a little bit and want to protect them. Um, as someone who's been a news, news mom my whole life, uh, I have tried to expose them to the world that we live in. And my diagnosis was the immediate world that they were living in at that time. And after the first you know, initial shock of letting them know what was happening, um, you know, we knew we were going to be in for the long haul on this, and, and they did great. Um, 
I think it's important to be honest with them. Uh, I think the difference nowadays compared to, say, a generation ago is not only is cancer so prevalent, we talk about cancer in public in a way that we never would have talked about it before. Um, And I think that that's really important, and I think that's really healthy uh, for them. And um, they were great. You know, they watched me go through it. They watched... uh, the impact it had on my body, um, and for two, you know, preteen girls, they uh, really managed fine with my bald head and were very supportive of me going out, and if that was the way that made me feel comfortable, they were fine with that. What about the fear of that you would die, that you wouldn't be there? I mean, is that something that you discussed with them? I mean, we talk about being honest, and I, and I think you're absolutely right, it's, it's on television. We talk about breast cancer, films, Internet, which is a good thing, but their deepest fear, their darkest fear, I should say. You know, say. I think we didn't, we didn't talk about that because my prognosis was good. Um, you know, the way my doctors described it was I was going to go through a really rough period, um, but they felt good about it. And, you know, my kids have been exposed to friends of ours who have had cancer and who subsequently died, um, so they have seen that side of things, uh, I think just being straight with them is really important. And my doctors were great. Um, You know, my kids were 11 and 13 at the time. And in fact, my breast surgeon, when I met her for the first time, she, we talked through what we were dealing with and what we were likely to have to do. And, you know, the most important thing she said to me was, if you need me, if you want to bring your girls in for me to talk to them about what you're going through, I'm happy to do that. Um, and I think that was just a wonderful, wonderful gesture, you know, and a demonstration of an understanding on the part of a doctor that the disease affects not just the patient but the whole family. Yeah, and, and given that, it would seem to me, and maybe from my social work background, that that probably should be part of standard care. And, and not something that would be even unique. Something well, that would be... I, I think it's probably unique when I tell people, you know, we didn't have to do that, um, but it was a wonderful gesture on the part of the doctor who I met for the first time, and the other thing she said to me was, I hope you like me because we're going to know each other for a long time <laughs> in trying to make me feel um, okay about what I was going through. Well, we just took one of the alphabet. We took the K. We've got the whole alphabet. Um, should we take a couple of the other letters? I, th- I would say they're the most significant in terms that, you know, we don't have, obviously we're not going to go through the whole book, but that, you know, represents some of the issues, the most significant issues for you during this whole process. Well, I think um, it's funny. I think the book, you know, covers a range of sort of important and necessary things like Emma's for mastectomy. And then um, I was a tough letter to come up with, and I, I decided it was for indignities, um, and you have to live with a lot of them when you're going through your treatment. Um, you're poked and prodded and um, manhandled and womanhandled, and um, it's all very painful and annoying, and it's okay to acknowledge that. Um, but I also deal with some things that were surprising or surprising at least to people who've read the book, and things that for me, you know, I would never have known if I hadn't known other people who'd gone through it. So some topics may seem light, but they're important. I mean, one, for example, P is for pillows, um, and uh, I discovered that I could uh, engage in full pillow indulgence going through this surgery. Uh, As I said, the mastectomy is a very painful uh, physical assault on your body, and I had no idea that... You know the, what they do to your muscles—it's just 
brutal and I couldn't lie flat uh, after the surgery. And one of my friends who had gone through the mastectomy had, had delivered for me this giant wedge pillow so I could be upright or at least elevated on my bed and be a little more comfortable. Um, and in a million years, I would never have known that that's what I would have needed to help me get through that. Um, it's, it's a very small thing that made a huge, huge difference. And again, that, difference. Was, yeah. that was just because somebody I knew had gone through it. And you know, maybe women who are picking up this book, they may not know anyone who's gone through it. So I'm hoping that there are little tips like that that will help them. Sometimes those kinds of tips are the best tips that they can get. You're right. They seem insignificant, but they are the most important. What about women who don't have support? I mean, I'm listening to you, and you have a supportive family and your two girls and, and friends, and as you say, type A personality, uh, you know, uh, editor of NPR News. So you have a lot of people coming uh, to support you that you connect with. Um, what about women who perhaps don't have the, that overwhelming support that, that they can call on. What would you Well, I mean, recommend? one of the reasons I wrote the book was precisely yeah. for those women. You know, it's sort of gathered from, the book is gathered from my experience and the experience of friends around me who have gone through it. Um, I hope by reading it, people will understand the things that they can do for themselves. You know, one of the things I write about is, and as for notebook, for example, it's really important to keep notes um, during all your doctor visits so you can keep on top of what they're saying to you. It'll help you formulate questions when you are going to meet them. Um, and again, it's a small thing, but it's actually vital. I still use that same notebook for my regular checkups. Um, and no one would have thought about that, I think, necessarily. Um, you're in a blur in the doctor's office, but it's really important for you to keep on top of what they're saying. And I think the other most important thing for you as a patient is you have to be your own advocate. And I think we are a little cowed by the medical profession and we think that, oh, they're very clever and they went to med school and they understand everything and everything they're telling me is, you know, there's either a right or a wrong or a black and a white and it's not quite like that. And I think that we, in our relationship with the medical profession, whether you have breast cancer or any other kind of ailment, you have to feel confident, and it's hard to do, to push and ask questions yourself, not be a passive recipient of what the doctor is saying. How do you do that? How do you maintain that balance? Because I, I think that that is important, and you what, gather information, and then perhaps you're questioning something they're telling you because you don't feel it, or you actually have information that is contradictory? Or I, I think have... it's a combination of things. You know, um, if you can have, and I know it's hard for some women, but at least one person with you when you're with the doctor, uh, in my case it was my husband, um, you know, it could be your sister or your parent or your best friend, someone who is listening but with a different set of ears because they're not the patient, and together you can push back um, if you feel it's necessary. And you, you get a gut reaction with your doctor, whether you feel your doctor is um, being straight with you, whether you feel that you have a connection with your doctor. And I know it's one of the hardest things to do, um, and I have only learned it by experience. Um, frankly, as I've gotten older, I think I reached a tipping point where when I realized the doctor was maybe my age or younger, then I could talk to them um, in a more 
direct way. Um, it, it's not easy. It's it's really not easy. I I confess that, and you have to kind of feel yourself for it. At what point would one would you say it, you said you know you, you have to make that connection with the physician? Perhaps you can't make the connection with the physician. Perhaps this physician is you know the surgeon and oncologist or the whole team is top notch. You know, they're at a top-notch university like Georgetown, but at some point, you or even in the beginning, you realize, I am not making connection. Then what do you do? Because there's so much emotional stuff that's attached to it, but also their medical experience, and they may be top-notch doctors, but not for you, or that is not the team for you. Um, I think it's really, um, you know, it's, it's one of the sort of challenges of our healthcare system. You know, if you were in a position to ask for another doctor, or go somewhere else, you should do that. Um, you should also check on um, what the reputation of the doctors are that you are seeing. Um, and if you feel that their reputation will make up for their lack of bedside manner, then you can feel a little better about it. Um, but I, I, there are no easy answers, unfortunately. Um, I think, you know, many places have support groups, many places have wonderful, um, you know, the nurses who you deal with are in some ways your, your sort of go-between um, who deal with you in a way that the doctors don't because they come in and out, but the nurses are sort of with you more of the time. Um, I, I wish I had an easy answer, but there isn't an easy answer. I guess the answer is to be aware. I mean, you have to constantly be aware, and, and as you just said, you just can't uh, accept treatment um, blindly. I mean, you have to be a part of it. You're part of your own treatment plan. But I think absolutely, thing, yeah. Our medical profession is like uh, it's like many other things in our life. It's a fee for fee based customer service organization, like many others. And if you don't like the service in a restaurant, you usually you might complain. Um, if you don't like what you're getting in your medical session, you should find a way to to, to try and articulate that. Um, and I think a lot more hospitals now are working on the customer service part um, and customer satisfaction, um, which seems like a crass way to think about it, but if it's actually true. Um, you know, there's a fee for service, the reputations of the hospital and the services they're giving matter, and they're continuing to be measured by that. Um, yeah, I think that's good advice, and I think that is true. I don't think it's crass. I think it's just practical. I mean, that's just the way the system works. Um, you know, we have a few more minutes left, so I just want you to tell, like, three years ago you were diagnosed, now you're here today, and you've written the book. Um, just emotion, what your journey, where, are the, you know, where, how far you've come, um, how different are you today? Well, um, I don't think I'm necessarily different. Uh, the letter E is for epiphany, and my conclusion is I didn't really have an epiphany, except that you know, my life was pretty good, and I kind of wanted to go back to that. I think The one thing I will say is that um, A is for anxiety, and the anxiety never goes away um, because you know we know that we actually don't have a cure for cancer. What the doctors are doing is trying to reduce the odds of it coming back, um, and unfortunately, metastatic breast cancer is something that doesn't get talked about a lot, um, but is a real issue. Um, and I think the reason it doesn't get talked about a lot is goes back to our sort of pink, fluffy culture. You know, one of the reasons I, I'm not a subscriber to that sort of, 
you know, warrior mentality is the implication is that if you, if it comes back or if you happen to die from your breast cancer, it's like you're failing. And I just don't subscribe to that at all. It's a, it's a disease where you're, you know, you get a genetic malfunction and things go a little haywire um, with your cells and the anxiety is always there. So that's sort of how I feel. I'm very vigilant. I try not to be in a crouch of fear, um, but monitoring and being vigilant because sadly I know, you know, too many people whose cancer has come back. So it's almost described as a... As a uh, um a condition. I, I, I'm not. Uh, that's probably not the right word, but something that you live with. You live with it in the same way. Uh, sort of. I describe grief. You know, when my mother died, I never. I, I, it, you know, I was so grief stricken, and you know, over the years, I realized that no, you never get over it. You learn to live with the fact that it's happened, and I live with the fact that I have been diagnosed with breast cancer, and I've had great treatment, and. You know, one of my chapters is always for odds, and it's all an odds game. And I am hoping that my odds are pretty good that it doesn't come back. Well, we're rooting for you, and it was a pleasure to talk to you today. And um, a, on a, a, breast ca- a breast cancer alphabet—that's uh, Medlika's new book, Medlika Sika. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I want to know uh, what website that we can go to. Uh, yeah, at breastcanceralphabet.com. And I also wanted to say that uh, this is my breast cancer alphabet, but I know others would have something that they, you know, their letters may be different. So I've started a Tumblr, a breastcanceralphabet.tumblr.com. And I would really encourage people to submit their own letters and maybe we can put together a whole dictionary. An encyclopedia. Maybe. <laughs> you need a whole yeah. encyclopedia from A to Z. Yeah, com, and it's uh, very gratifying to hear from people who have different letters than me. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Catherine. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. In today's society, there is just too much competition. Women are taking on the same roles as men. They're working side by side, competing for the same positions. What is happening? 
This is transferring to how men and women feel about each other and relationships. We're delaying marriages or not even getting married at all. It's time to go back to basics. Listen for this groundbreaking show with host Naftali Schwartz. But it's not really that groundbreaking. It's just a new way of looking at things. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My second guest is John Havens. He's joining me today. He's a contributing writer for The Guardian, The Huffington Post, and founder of the Hapathon Project and author of Hacking Happiness. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. And I guess there's another piece of this. You've also been a principal or been a, in Broadway show, so you're a perfect guest for a radio show, an actor. Uh, Hacking Happiness, you described yourself as a futurist. What is, uh, so my question is, what is a futurist, and how does that to re- relate to your book, Hacking Happiness, which kind of sounds like, I don't know whether you'd call it an oxymoron, but hacking and happiness don't always seem to go together. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Um, well, futurist is a word that you know people understand. I like to think about the future. I never mean to sound sort of like arrogant with that term. It sounds kind of hokey. It's, I guess, I'm more of a pragmatic presentist, like thinking about uh, culturally and ethically how will technology, especially, affect us uh, even in the near future versus you know necessarily like dystopian. Uh, pictures, you know, decades down the line. Uh, and in terms of the title, Hacking Happiness, what I'm referring to in hacking is the idea of like a hackathon, which is a positive rethinking of an idea rather than hacking as in like nefarious hacking your computer. And the book and my work is about rethinking happiness so it's not just about basing your life on mood. All right, so let's talk about that. Rethinking happiness so it's not... Our life isn't just based on mood. What do you mean by that? Well, there's two types of uh, happiness, according to positive psychologists or psychologists in general, Um, and they're called either hedonic happiness, and this is based on the word hedonism, which is somewhat of a momentary or ephemeral mood-based happiness, and it's very natural, by the way, so this is not pejorative, but that's what a lot of people think of when they think of happiness. It's that rush of oxytocin or dopamine in your brain when you're seeing an exciting movie or you get a raise. Um, The difficulty with with living your life based on that happiness is there's a term called the hedonic treadmill in positive psychology circles, which means that you kind of get used to those ups of, hey, I just got a raise, but then when your next door neighbor gets, you know, more higher raise than you do, you kind of go on a big down, and that up and down cycle can be difficult to sort of live by. So the other type of happiness or intrinsic well-being, the Greek word, it's called eudaimonic happiness. And this is based on things like uh, time with family, time with friends, having work that gives you purpose. And it's the type of activities and actions you can actually pursue to build a long-lasting and aggregate 
uh, sense of well-being versus just uh, kind of trying to live on all the happy moments that you can manufacture. Okay, John, let's put it in terms of our culture here in America. Where do we, uh, on a daily basis, would you say most Americans stand in terms of their happiness, how they view their happiness? I mean, whether you're eating good food or getting, as you say, uh, a raise or great sex or, I mean, that's, that's the first kind of happiness, right, that you're never satisfied that's the risk. I mean, again, these things can all be very natural and they're great. It's just the sense of, in our culture, especially, you know, focused on consumerism, uh, the logic is I have to get more at all times. I have to be productive at all times. And that's the mindset where you sort of are manufacturing or only focusing on those quick blasts or you get focused on comparing yourself to others as compared to saying, how can I build the intrinsic well-being uh, side of my life, which could be, you know, by yourself, working on a craft or learning an instrument. Um, and that's, I think, something that's not as encouraged, especially in U.S. consumerist culture, because the message is always, we'll go buy more stuff. And buying more stuff is what usually leads to the, the, the difficulties. Bigger, better, and more. Yeah, so, uh, but how are we going to, and, I, and, I, I, and obviously it doesn't work for us because we're fatter and actually I think most of us are poorer even though we want to have more money and we continue to, to spend and all of those, you know, activities that you described. So, so what do we do and why? I, it seems to me it almost is given the context in which we live or the society in which we live, it's very difficult and I'll say, what, capitalist society? to be able to pursue these kind of intrinsic well-being. Is that possible? How do we do it? It is difficult. And, no, I don't think it's impossible. It's, um, <clears throat> the, the work that I'm trying to do is to, in a sense, quantify either emotions or quantify a lot of things which normally people would consider to be intangible. And the logic there is that if I say to you, hey, go and be nice to three people today, and, again, I'm being, now I am being pejorative to make a point, you know, if you didn't know who I am, you might be like, well, of course, that's great. I'm going to go be nice to some people. But positive psychology, you know, scientifically through longitudinal testing has showed that altruism helps the giver as much as the person who's receiving. And what that means is your brain, again, registers oxytocin, dopamine, these sort of happy hormones, as it were, where you actually are literally making yourself happier by helping others. So while, you know, we could do a whole other series of questions on the motivation of why to help people, my logic is, look, how are you going to, in one sense, give yourself therapy throughout the day? And we all do. I, I suffer, uh, you know, I tend to overeat. You might watch movies. You know, there may be more dangerous things like substances or, you know, porn uh, addiction, what have you. <clears throat> Without trying to come to like a formal therapeutic diagnosis for anyone of your listeners, the idea is we'll practice. Just test this idea when you go and help someone. Again, make sure they want the help, of course, but then see how you feel afterwards. That is, a, in, a, in a sense, a way to provide yourself therapy kind of for free. And, and this idea of altruism or gratitude, even without anyone else in the room, thinking about what am I grateful for? It's kind of like the same way you would go to the gym and exercise. You start doing these exercises focused on this uh, field of positive psychology. And these are things that can increase this intrinsic well-being without any money. And, and again, you start to see the additive and complementary effects of these things combining in the same way when you eat better and go to the gym, you know, your muscles get stronger uh, on a regular basis. So one has to be mindful of what they're doing. As you're saying, when you do these 
kind of or have these intrinsic feelings of well-being. Be mindful of it. But as I understand it, John, statistically anyway, that Americans are the most generous people on the planet, not just in terms of money, but in terms of time, that we do do that. I mean, that is part of our lifestyle, but it also kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with this other uh, stuff that we've been talking about as well that we think that's going to make us happy. So we do do both, is it that we don't really understand aren't mindful that we are doing it and how that really will give us more of a sense of well-being than, you know, overeating or drinking or... Um... Yeah, I think, um, you know, statistics, there's different countries uh, excel in different things. And again, I never ever want to sound negative in terms of, I'm making a holistic value judgment for every American, you know. Um, and in the sense of when people already in their lives... Um, are, say, volunteering or giving their time, then they should naturally probably, you know, the, the logic is and the science is they'll be experiencing these emotions and this intrinsic well-being anyway. Uh, to your point, <clears throat> and a lot of the book, um, why the, uh, the subtitle is Why Your Personal Data Counts and How Tracking It Can Change the World. What I say a lot is if you want your life to count, you need to take account of your life. And in the same way, if you've ever journaled, as I have as a writer, not as much as I would have liked, but when you can look back on a day and have that tool to reflect, you can see, you know, I forgot about that thing that happened today. Now that I have this information, it's a data point. I don't need to judge myself or feel horrible that I did or didn't do something. But now I can move forward to the next day being aware of how that affected me positively or negatively. So the people you mentioned, if they are already volunteering, and they wrote down not just, I felt good because I did this, which is great, but more specifically, well, how did it make you feel good and why? Was it because you helped someone else? Probably. Or also was it that you got to use a skill, for instance, that you don't necessarily get to, work, uh, get to use in your work life every day? And, and using skills, this idea of flow, is another big idea of positive psychology. It means you feel like you're doing the work that you were born to do. So uh, like the work that I'm doing with the Hapathon Project, we're trying to match people to volunteer opportunities where they can experience this flow. So it's like a double hit of this intrinsic well-being. They're helping others. They get the altruism. But they also maybe get to experience this flow where they're doing work that they feel like they were, they were built to do. And also, John, as I understand it, you're saying there are, and uh, this I wasn't aware of, there are the emerging technologies, actual that will help us to kind of reclaim this data for ourselves in terms of, as you're describing, the, the, the being able to do activities or helping other people, but you can actually track that on your iPhone. Can you talk, tell us about that? Sure. There's a whole uh, slew, if that's the best <laughs> word, a myriad of uh, apps and technologies that let you do things like analyze your mood. So a buddy of mine uh, named uh, Byram, he's from Moscow, has created a great app that's free on Android, uh, iOS, and online. It's called InFlow, I-N-F-L-O-W. And you download it to your phone, <clears throat> and what it does is it uses an experience sampling method that positive psychology uh, has used now for a while. It's also used in surveys uh, by like economists, I think the Gallup people may be using it, and what that means is instead of me just asking you how you're feeling in one particular moment or a series of questions in the survey one for one time, uh, what this app does and a lot of these mood uh, journal sort of focused apps do is they will send you prompts, which uh, appears like kind of like a text on your mobile phone. 
And throughout the day, and you can tell it how often you want it to do this, a prompt comes up and that just says, you know, excuse me, tell me how you're doing. And that has a level of 1 to 10, or in the case of inflow, it's a fun smiley face. And you just drag your thumb across the screen, and it moves the smiley face from going to sad to happy. Um, what the logic here is, and there's, this is a, a longer conversation, um, and I'm happy to go into it, but there's this logic of throughout the day, we don't necessarily, because it's not our job, to know how we're feeling in every moment of our day. But oftentimes for ourselves, we don't necessarily know what would make us happy in our lives because we don't track what already is bringing us happiness or, or is uh, keeping us from that happiness. So uh, um, an app like um, Inflow <clears throat> lets you track your mood, and then you can actually see graphs over the course of weeks or even months, and you can start to see patterns. And the patterns are where you really get insights that can lead to optimizing your life or making a change. You can see, is there a location? Is there a time? Are there people? Because you can also track in this app what people you're with when you make these, uh, these judgments. Um, are there people where I'm more happy than not? And some of it may be obvious. You know, I'm very happy with my family. I'm not as happy as work, at, at work. But there may be things that are new discoveries you hadn't thought of, and those patterns can lead to insights where you can make positive change. You're going to put psychologists and social workers out of business? <laughs> no, actually, I know a lot of people who bring these apps with them to see their doctors. And my dad, um, the whole inspiration for my, my work is actually... I lost my dad, and he was a psychiatrist for 40 years, so I have, I have high, high respect for the field. And that's one app. Are there other apps that are like this or complemented? Oh, yeah. I'll give you a couple more examples. <clears throat> There's one that's really fun to try called Cardio, and that's C-A-R-D-I-I-O. I think it's a dollar to download um, on for the uh, iPhone. And this was created by some people at MIT, and it's fascinating. You take your iPhone and put it about a foot away from your face, and you press the on button, and for about 30 seconds it scans your face, and it can tell your accurate heart rate just by having it pointed at your face. And it does this because it measures through the light um, on your skin tone, whatever your skin color, when there's more or less blood that goes to your face. And why I think this is such a powerful tool to just test and get used to is this idea that something can track your heart rate or your biometric data without even having to touch you. There's a lot of things right now like a Fitbit, uh, things that you can measure your like pulse and sleep that you can wear. These are called wearables or wearable technologies. But I always mention cardio because I think pretty soon we're going to get used to the idea that we might be wearing, say, like a, a contact lens outfitted with a technology called augmented reality, which essentially means you can sort of see data over your eyes as if you were sort of wearing a computer over your eyes. And if you have this type of app like this cardio app, you could actually sort of look at the person's face who you're speaking to and see when their heart rate goes up or down, and these things actually correlate to different types of emotions. Could this, though, John, make, tend to make one anxious with all this information coming in all the time? I mean, you have to know how to process it. Definitely, and that's, that's a lot of what I write about as well, meaning I would say technology is neither inherently good or evil. You know, we could both look at a stick, and one person could say, well, I'm going to burn it to have a fire and keep us all warm. Another person could say, well, I'm going to use it to, you know, to hit my enemy, right? Um, I think one of the reasons I like to come up with, and this is the future side of me, um, uh, scenarios about potential futures is to say, well, if, if the technology could enable these things, let's discuss the ethical and cultural ramifications of what these are. So to your point, 
we can say where would this technology be something that um, uh, people could get used to. So even if they are a little bit anxious using it the first time, they've both agreed to and consent to the, the better possibilities of what it could bring versus, say, walking into a Starbucks and one person has this type of technology, nobody else does, but everyone knows it, and, you know, everyone's kind of freaking out because it's, it's not something they've all agreed on to use together. Yeah, that was my next question. I mean, how, when do we start using it? Who tells us to use it? Where do we get it from? Are we all going to have the same access to this? Was um, it start school children, doctors, other institutions? How does that work as a futurist? Well, yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. A lot of what I've been writing about, and, and the book, um, the, the, the reason I use the term personal data, is most of us are used to going online, especially to services like a Facebook or Google or, or any of the services we use, and either signing a privacy agreement or a terms and conditions agreement where we allow them to use our personal data, or a lot of times we go to a site, and even without signing anything, they use what's called cookie data, to analyze aspects of our identity and actions, meaning the browser from your computer, you know, people can tell like your location and other aspects of your life. So the Internet economy <clears throat> has evolved over the past 10, 15, 20 years so that the main way that people make money, uh, advertisers like a Google, is through advertisements. So a lot of people say that we, meaning humans, are the product that is sort of sold. And in the case of our personal data, what that means is a lot of these terms and conditions we sign, we sort of have this on we, we're just tired of like, okay, fine, and we click the button and say, take my data. <laughs> and we think it's a one-time transaction to use, you know, what are often great services. Like, like Google's a fantastic company. I like a lot of their products. What I don't like is the logic that data that I'm using, maybe I think once or twice as an, as an exchange to use their services, may be used hundreds, thousands, indefinitely, amount of times, <clears throat> and sold to data brokers, uh, which are these third parties that sometimes for good purposes, other times for somewhat nefarious, use this data. And, and to your point, there are no common standards about how this data is used. Uh, the majority of American data brokers right now are being sanctioned by the FTC because they won't even allow consumers to see copies of the data that they are stored and have collected. So a lot of also what I'm trying to do in this book and in my work is to tell people I'm not here to tell you what to do with your personal data. I, I do in the book talk a lot about something called personal clouds, and I can tell you more about that if you're interested, but that's a way to protect your data so that when a mom or a dad or kids or anybody goes out into the world, <clears throat> into the public, they can protect how their data is broadcast to the world. All right, so talk to us about that personal cloud. What is it? So personal clouds, uh, people, I'm sure your listeners and you, you know, you're used to something like the Amazon cloud, where instead of having to store your photos and uh, emails or what have you on an online, uh, I'm sorry, a, a home computer, you get to store your stuff in the cloud, which means that it's in other servers away from your house or computer, so you save storage space. <clears throat> personal clouds, it's the same logic, but instead of it being data like about your photos or, or stored documents, it's, uh, you can actually store what's called your PII data, and that stands for personally identifiable information, or actually all of your data. But PII data, a lot of people, or, or what this term means is like your most precious data that represents your identity, so your social security, your address, um, gender, year of birth. 
when you as a person can protect this, and personal clouds, they also sometimes are called personal data banks or vaults. In the same way, if you carried around $1,000 with you in your hand and someone said, I would like to make this transaction with you, and you could look them in the eye and say, okay, I'm willing to pay $3 for that item. And they say, great. And then you exchange it that one time. Data banks and data vaults are now going to allow people to do this <clears throat> with their data. But uh, to an earlier question you asked, so it won't be so crazy for us to walk around the world and think, well, I'm going into Starbucks, and then I'm going to the post office, and then I'm going to a friend's house. Three different environments electronically in terms of how data and Wi-Fi operates. You can just set up your preferences for how you want your data to be shared and when. And essentially that means as you walk into, say, like a Starbucks, if someone's trying to take your photo and you haven't given them permission, they may see a message because you've preset this in sort of your data preferences I don't like my picture taken in public. If you're going to take my picture, I won't allow you to tag me, which is a way that like Facebook and Google, you know, you can tag a picture. I won't allow you to tag me without my permission. So just as a quick synopsis, the data bank idea means you kind of get to pull all your data in, at least from the time that you start using it moving forward. So you get to dictate who uses your data, how often, and when. John, so you're saying that you're empowering, as, as I'm listening to you, um, and if one reads your book, it gives us the opportunity as individuals to be empowered in the same way that some of these big companies are, like Google and Facebook and Amazon. We're not just kind of victims to their gathering our information and we can't really do anything about it. Is, is that what you're saying? Yes, and I am evangelistic about people learning about these services. And I'll give you a couple of names just to get specific. There's a, a company called Personal.com. I interviewed their founder, Shane Green, in the book. They're fantastic. <clears throat> they have a service. I, I, I can look it up. I think it's called Fill It. But okay. it gets you used to this idea of giving your data, um, uh, your, the golden copy, as it were, of your most precious data in a protected way through this data bank mindset their service lets you enter in your password stuff once, and then as you go to sites where you want to give permission to share that data, it does it automatically. Um, so personal.com is one <clears throat> place. And by the way, I have no official affiliation with them. I just think they're great. Um, another uh, organization and the Hapathon Project, my nonprofit foundation, we are a founding partner here, um, but there's no money exchanged, so there's the disclosure there when I make these recommendations. Um, the Respect Network is a series of uh, personal data cloud providers around the world. And uh, the Respect Network is trying to create um, over a million users within the next year or two. And in their case, you pay, I believe it's 25 American dollars for the year to have this data bank store your data. And then, again, you get to control, to your point. And this, by the way, doesn't mean that you're saying to Google and Facebook, I never want to use you guys again. And it doesn't mean your relationships with brands have to change. What my hope is, is that the smart brands and the Googles and the Facebooks will say, okay, now I have a much bigger chance for more transparency and even more intimate, as it were, a uh, more intimate relationship with consumers because they're going to tell me exactly, I mean, granularly, how and when they want to be contacted, how I can bring value to them. Instead of, you know, right now, especially in Facebook, you know, ads that 90% of the time don't really relate to you at all. Exactly. So anyway, those we are a couple to, of You know, we have to end it on this. It's, it's a, a fascinating. And 
I, so I do want to mention, obviously, your book again, ha- Hacking Happiness. You can get by it online, bookstores everywhere, John Havens, and listen to John's TED Talk, TEDx Talk. You can listen to that on YouTube. Lots of information today. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.